0: Last December 6th, we played our hometown of Toronto at Lee's Palace. Watching the show was Lynn McNeil, who I've known for almost 25 years. Knowing he was in the crowd, I told the story on stage of the time we were at the back of the Rivoli Club together watching the Dirty Three, or rather, talking through their set. And backstage, Lynn was adamantly trying to convince me to ditch school, to ditch everything and just go for this music thing that I had dipped my feet into. I knew he was right. He knew he was right. But I didn't have the balls to do it just yet. I still remember the look Lynn gave me. It was a look one gives a fool. That night made a very big impression on me. Well, of course, I heeded his advice and it wasn't too much of a struggle. But there was a struggle. At a certain point, I realized you have to either shit or get off the pot. So I eventually took that giant crap. The truth is, though, there needs to be a struggle in order to feel a pull. No struggle, no pull. There's no calling. And that's what it it is, a calling. It's a voice inside you guiding you, leading you towards something. You can deny it exists. You can defy its presence. You can convince yourself it's wrong, but it will always pull you if and when you leave, it will pull you back. No matter what I told myself, no matter what I said I was going to do, the pull to be on stage, in a band, performing, being on the road, playing music, it was so strong. No matter what other things I did, it would always tug at me like I was chained to it. Some people feel it in different walks of life. Maybe they need to be around plants or become a veterinarian. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they need to be around cars and become a mechanic. I don't know. But for someone who wants to literally run away, hit the road, and join the rock and roll circus, that is a different kind of calling. That is, if I can borrow a line from Alex Mitchell, the call of the wild. It's a call that's exciting. It's scary. It's mean. It's heartless. It may kill you, but it's fantastic. And to those who have felt that pull, We know when we see each other. I meet them on the road, I see them on stage, and we can sense the cloth we're both cut from. Jerry Montana was someone who felt that pull and immediately followed it. He is proof that if you heed the call, it may not always be smooth, but it will be an unbelievable ride. From playing in The Deadlights, to playing in Nothing Face, to forming Hell Yeah, or playing bass in Danzig, Jerry Montano's rock and roll journey rolls out like a movie script. If you close your eyes while listening to this episode, while Jerry speaks, you'll be able to see it. Everything one hopes happens to them if they dare take a gamble in the world of rock happened to Jerry. Last week, guitarist Sean Kelly was on the podcast, and he talked about his formative years getting into rock and roll and eventually touring with rock bands. Sean grew up four hours from me, so we do have similar entry points. But here's Jerry Montano, who grew up in California, and still the same touchstones apply. In this divisive world we currently live in, where everybody is at each other's throats— I can't help but observe that while growing up and being told rock and roll is a bad path to choose, having it maligned so much and used as a reason for ridicule towards me, to turn around and see how unifying it actually was, that people so far apart can have so many shared experiences and backgrounds without ever meeting, is a testament to the power of rock and roll and the power of music. I met Jerry at the last show we ever played. Gallagher's Pub at Huntington Beach with Junkyard and Mono Deluxe this past February. Ace Von Johnson introduced us, and then COVID happened. Since that time, Jerry and I have continued that discussion from that initial meeting at the show, and I knew this podcast episode would eventually happen. There are so many twists and turns to this episode. I mean, I didn't even get to ask him how his friend Marco knew HR from the Bad Brains. But we'll save that for next time, I want to thank Ace Von Johnson for introducing the two of us to each other. Thanks, Ace. And thank you for listening while we are in lockdown. I appreciate the comments and the tweets about the episodes. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. I do this out of boredom and an insatiable need to hear myself talk, but also to get episodes like this one you're about to hear. All I ask is a like on iTunes and or a kind review. This episode needs a seatbelt, so strap in, because Jerry Montano is on the podcast, and it starts now. The Jones is the best Jones has a podcast. It's called the Danko Jones Podcast! La da 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 da, da. La da da da, da 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 I know that disco and rock and roll aren't supposed to mix and we all know how great a rock guitarist Danko is, but when I accompanied him one night to a disco nightclub, I watched in awe as Danko tore up the dance floor. He was like, Danny Terrio, John Travolta, and Adrian Zemet all rolled into one. When he was finished dancing, the music stopped and everyone applauded. The two of us immediately left the club and ended up in a blues bar where I watched Danko jam on CCR and Chuck Berry covers till dawn. It was amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts now! Hello? Genko. Hey, Jerry. How you doing, man?
1: Good, man. How are you?
0: Great. Great. Um, The last show we played before the COVID lockdown was uh, the Huntington Beach show and you were there. Yeah. That's my last memory of playing in a rock band.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Right? You're like from those fucking gigantic shows in Europe and then Huntington Beach. Which is still cool, right? Because being in clubs, that's still, like, the vibe. But nothing really beats, like, a gigantic crowd going crazy. Yeah?
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, the crowd was great that night. Um, and it was fun to play with Junkyard and stuff. But I remember just talking to you and Tim from Junkyard and Ace Von Johnson. Yeah. And that's it. And then that's, that's the end of music, live music for me right now.
1: <laughs> right. And, you know, Tim... Um, Tim I've been friends with for like 20 plus years and I didn't know him from being, I mean, I knew he was in junkyard back in the day, but they were before my, our time. But my old roommate was in like a rockabilly, like a, you know, a cow punk band with him for years. And that's how I knew him Right from him being in that band and all that stuff. But I knew Dave Roach from his younger brother and we all like, all of us grew up together. So I was like the little baby of the bunch, but I grew up around all the dog patch winos and junkyard guys and all the, like the stains and, you know, like all those crazy punk bands, you know what I mean? Like I fucking, I used to drive dee, dee Ramone home all the time, Lux interior, poison Ivy and you know, all those crazy people, you know?
0: So uh, there's so much to unpack with you. I, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, just just now you mentioned, you know, Lux Interior and Dee Dee Ramone. I mean, what is your history with rock and roll? I guess we should start there.
1: Okay. Well, like you, you know, like when I, when I was, a, as soon as soon, probably we're, we're so similar. When I was like five years old, all the kids in my neighborhood, everything was Kiss. Yeah. And I didn't even know what Kiss was. And I was just like, whoa, this is cool. And as soon like I remember very distinctively, the second that I saw, I saw a fucking blood spitting fire breathing fucking demon. And I was just like, what what the fuck is this? You know, and I I, I was just telling this story to my girlfriend the other day. Um, One of my first memories was my grandfather took me to Montgomery Wards and he's like, "Okay, let's go get you a BB gun. And I was like, I don't want a BB gun. I want the Kiss record. And he's like, Yeah, but we're going to get you a BB gun. And all I wanted was the Kiss record and Kiss Dynasty had come out. You know what I mean? Right. Um, You know, at the time. And I was just like, Oh my God, I got to have. If you didn't, you know, if you didn't have a Kiss record or a Kiss plate on your bike with stickers on it or something, then you were just, you know, you were just. The one, you know, everybody had it. It was just the way that it was. And so I got the Kiss record and then I started collecting Kiss stuff and, you know, my walls and all that stuff. And, and you know, I, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And the funny thing is, is you know, later on when I was maybe a teenager <clears throat> and going to what you, we were talking about, Wasp, my very first concert was Kiss, Animalize, and Wasp. Uh, The Last Command with the heads on the stage. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in the sixth grade, I think. I I believe I was in the fifth or the sixth grade. And me and my friend, we both lied to our parents like, oh, I'm going to stay the night at my friend Kip's house. He's like, I'm going to stay at Jerry's house. And we bought tickets. And I lived in Utah at the time. I'm from California, but my mom moved to Utah where her father lived in and we went and rode a city bus for an hour and went and saw Kiss and Wasp. And I was blown away. They have, they, those heads were like 15 feet taller. I mean, probably it seemed like it then, I don't know, but you know, so I remember that was it was always Kiss and me and that kid, we used to always cut out guitars out of plywood and we'd paint them and then we would pretend we were in a band, put on fucking accept balls to the wall on the jukebox and make fake ramps in this barn and we would pretend like we were in a band and every time because it was kip's house he got to be the lead guitar player and guess what i had to be the bass player you know like <laughs> tomorrow you get to be the guitar player i'm like come on man you know right um, and we would do fucking you know we'd jam out to grim i told nick bocott this story because we're good friends and i'm like you know when i was in the fifth grade dude i used to listen to see you in hell and fucking, you know, air guitar in a barn with hay. And if you would have told me I would play with you on stage and we would be friends, you know, um, it would blow my mind. So that's kind of like where it all started was Kiss, you know, all the same, all the staples of stuff like that. And then fast forward later into life, you know, I got into my first band and I started, I was a singer just growling and um, everybody was older than me. I was like 13. Everybody was like graduating from high school and They all got jobs. And I remember I was like, fuck these guys. Like, the bass player keeps quitting. I'm just going to buy a bass and fucking learn how to play. So uh, I got a job, shitty job, and I put a bass on layaway and I would go visit it every week and sit there with it for like a few hours and pay like, you know, $50 until I got to bring it home. And I just, I was just like, I'm writing songs. I'm going to make a band. And that's what I'm going to do. And I just, I didn't know shit. And I just started fucking writing, the, you know, whatever I could. And before I knew it, I could play. And, you know, I remember, you know, in Sacramento growing up, by the time I had a band, like, we were doing pretty well and we were opening up for Forbidden. I mean, I'm friends with Craig Lacero and we opened up for Forbidden on the Twisted and Deformed tour and COC on the Blind tour, you know, at this little club called uh, the Cattle Club, Bojangles in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, I had to open up for all these bands. And I remember I got to, uh, Zach Wilde came to do a guitar clinic and he, didn't, he needed a bass player. And I was like 15. And the guy who was going to do it got sick and they're like, hey, do you want to go do it? This is during No More Tears. And I went and did this like cool little guitar clinic thing or whatever and hung out with Zach Wilde. He still remembers meeting me when I was like 15. Wow. You know? And we're forever now. And he'll be like, you know, Father Montano, I remember when you were just a little boy. And I'm like, I remember going to the No More Tears tour and getting to jam with you fucking and you wearing your the bagosh fucking pants in your ass shit like you're driving a train, man. But, you know, with the fucking the the uh the bottle cap fucking Les Paul, you know what I mean? Like the cool shit. But so fast forward later on, I, I moved to LA and I was like I'm going to LA, I'm going to be a fucking rock star and shit. And I got here and I didn't know anybody and a good friend of mine Marco let me sleep on his floor. He's like, "Listen, you could sleep on my floor, but my other friends crashing on the floor. If you don't mind, it's just a single apartment." And I was like, "Dude, I don't care. I have nowhere to live." And it was me and Marco and HR from the Bad Brains. So like every morning I would wake up morning, you know, next to HR sleeping next to me. Hey man, you know, and I'd be like, "So I became really close with like HR, and I I love him. He's he's always been such a sweetheart human being. I just watched his documentary, and I you know, it brought back so many memories. You know, because I would sit with HR for all I you know I didn't have a job, I was practically homeless. So was he. You know, HR lived on the streets, man. You know, he 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 was definitely he's definitely his own person um but i got to spend a lot many years and a lot of time um very close with him um and uh you know so it was kind of like coming up in that time in the in the mid 90s in hollywood and it was after the, just right after the riots and hollywood was still pretty dangerous and shit and uh you know i and eventually i couldn't stay there anymore and i i refused to go home to sacramento so i ended up um I got the. I would go and hang out at this poster shop all day long on Hollywood Boulevard, behind this uh, lingerie store called the Rock Shop. My friend Seth, his sister, and his brother-in-law—they still own Cleopatra Records. Brian.
0: Oh um, wow! Okay.
1: I've known Brian for you know since I was probably 18 years old, but um, and so I would hang out at the fucking poster shop all day and do nothing until finally the guy was like hey listen you're starving you're homeless here's five bucks get lunch sweep the floors." so i'd sweep the floors hang out there all day and hang out with like Roz williams and fucking you know all these like crazy people that would come in to bring in their flyers you know christian death fucking the mentors el duche we would dress up el duche every day and send him out panhandling and um <laughs> that's a true story man like crazy crazy shit but um And I lived on the roof of the building. And I would climb up the fire escape at nighttime and sleep on top of the roof of this building. And then you know, in the morning, I would come down the fire escape and fucking get my clothes out of the bathroom and the fucking poster shop and shower and whatever and then spend the day there. And then I would wander down uh, to Hollywood Boulevard to this place called Bar Deluxe, which was a punk rock bar, like rockabilly bar. And from there, that's kind of where I started to really... Meet more people You know Dee Dee would hang out there You know All different people You know Brian Setzer would come in The guys from Tenderloin Like Like All these cool Underground Punk bands And Even my roommate You know I had met at the time Koichi from Static X You know I I booked their very I think their very first show ever When they first got to LA At that little Punk bar And me and um, Me and my friend Rob who's, he goes by Blasco, Blasco from Ozzy, you know, right. at the time we were in a band together and, you know, we were kind of like the bartenders who or he was the bartender, I was the bar back and I would hang out in there and, you know, for 10 bucks, sit there all night, drink a few free beers and we would, you know, hang out with all these cool people. And it just kind of spread from there. I think, you know, how it really started was one day at the poster shop this guy that I worked with said, Hey man, there's this party, this house party, you should come. And I was like, okay. So I go to this house party and there's this guy and I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, this place is great. He, was, he managed this apartment building, right? So there was all these empty apartments and we're all getting drunk in them in the empty rooms and shit. And I'm like, dude, this is really cool. He's like, yeah, I manage the place. I'm like, so what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a hairstylist in Beverly Hills. You know, I do like Lisa Marie Presley's hair and all this shit. And I'm like, man, that's so fucking rad. You have a job. I, I can't even buy a Whopper with cheese, you know, <laughs> for real. And, uh, and uh, you know, he's like, well, you know, I was, I'm a singer in a band, too, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, man, you know, you, you should meet the other people in my band. I meet them. And they're like, so you're from Sacramento? I'm like, yeah. Where do you live? I'm like, I live on the roof of the fucking rock shop on Hollywood Boulevard. And they're like, listen, the guitar player, he's like, dude, I, he's like, fuck that. Just live at our house. You can live on our floor. We don't care. And it was Dez from um, Double Driver.
0: He oh, was. really?
1: Yeah. So it was like Dez and Meeks, Miguel. So it was like way before, was, you know, Cold Chamber had gotten signed, and I was like living on their floor, and we would have all these crazy cake parties, dude. And we'd sit in the front yard, I swear to God. And it would be like me, Shavo from System, Darren, Static X, Cold Chamber, Fear Factory, Downset, you know, all the bands that ended up being all the new metal bands we were all friends playing like shows at the coconut teaser for three dollars on tuesday nights i mean i have all those flyers incubus snot system you know just endless head P, all the bands you know that in the 2000s we all have getting right. record deals but that's kind of how it all started and i ended up playing with blasco and um this band suffer and he joined danzig they joined prong and he went on and on and right i was doing my you know kind of finding out where i was going and i started jamming with the guys from pygmy love circus with like uh danny Carey and um mike savage and all that stuff and and then shavo called me and was like hey man listen there's this band from orange county called the deadlights or called suction and he was like you know you should go down jam with them i was like dude i'm not playing in a band from orange county i'm from hollywood i'm never going to orange county anyway i went down there jam with them they were super cool I gel with them we wrote a song and I was like dude I think this is the song and I happen to know my guitar player from the pygmy love circus band yes. um, his best friend was a lawyer sky and now he's the guitar player for talking John Levin this is before he was a guitar player and well actually before that he was in a band called warlock I didn't know that right like in the 80s or something oh okay yeah and so gave him the demo and you know he did the whole like record thing like listen man you know, I guarantee you a major label contract within three months or you're up free and clear. Okay. Dude, two weeks later he calls us, we go into this place, Sylvia Roan, the head of fucking Electra and all their staff come in. And uh, well th- right before that, Lars from Metallica wanted to sign us. And she came in, We played for her and fucking we had like million dollar deal, right? All of a sudden, like I was twenty four and Next thing you know, we were you know we were like the last band of all the bands. Static didn't signed, Coal Chamber, um, uh, System was signed, everybody was signed, and we were like the last band. And finally, we got the deal with Electra and you know, kind of went on and started doing it for real. You know, it was pretty crazy.
0: Wow, you know, and and that street, you know that was the Deadlights.
1: That was the Deadlights, yeah, and so we ended up uh, doing the record with Sylvia Massey at sound city, which was fucking so much, which was magical and cool. And she was great to work with. And, um, cause basically it was like Sylvia Rome, the president of Electra, came in. It was really weird. We play for her and she comes in with a heavy entourage, all these limos, like out of a fucking movie and she's, you know, and she sits there, looks at us and then it's dead silent in this place. And, uh, and they're like, okay, play. And they're like, okay. You know what I mean? Weird. So we play. And after like 15 seconds, she raises her hand and says, stop. And I remember I looked at my singer Duke and I was like, you motherfucker, you fucked it up. <laughs> like, motherfucker, I hate you. And she's like, and they're talking for a minute. And then she says, okay, um, Rebecca. She's like, yeah. She's like, who did uh, Tools record? They're like, Ron St. Germain. Get him on the phone. Uh, he's doing 311. Okay, who else did Tool? Sylvia Massey. Get him on the phone. Hey, guys. Yeah? See you in New York in two weeks. Congratulations. See you later. Bye. Everybody got up at once and left, and we were like, what? And they're like, you just got a, you just got signed to Electra. And I was like, you mean the fucking record label that I fucking, like, looked at all my Metallica records on and stared at that logo since I was a little kid? You know? like." what and dude and and it ended up being this i mean it ended up being a little bit of a fiasco because we signed a production deal and we had to fight these guys for some money for a while but we ended up getting the deal and made the record and static x took us out on our first tour which was fun and then i remember our second tour our manager was my old drummer joey gold he's he's in a band from love called love hate from la oh yeah okay Yeah, and so I had him. He was our manager at the time, and he was great. We're still really close friends. And, dude, I remember we came from Static X, and one of my favorite bands was always Typo Negative. Like, I just fuck I was a carnivore fanatic. I was a Typo Negative fanatic. I just loved them since I was a teen. And I remember we played our last show with Dope and Static X, and he was like, hey, guys, keep your bags packed. You're going out with Typo Negative in two weeks. And I was like, what? I remember it was a world coming down tour and I remember I was sitting in the RV. I'm sure you've had this moment many times where you're going to open up for somebody that you're just so excited for and you just want to see them, but you don't want them to know that you see him. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, Oh my God, like really, are we doing this? And you're looking like, Oh my God, there he is. You know, and you know, you know how it is. It's like yeah. first day at school and you're excited. And then that kind of led into like a whole long relationship with, um, Typo negative and you know, Slipknot, same thing. I think when we were making our record with uh, at uh, Sound City, no, we were energy and you know, they would bring bands in occasionally. And one day, Ross, who we're friends with, Robinson, comes in and hey, I'm bringing this band in. And I remember I was sitting there with my bass and Slipknot hadn't been, they'd just been signed in, done anything. And Paul Gray, who ended up being very, very close with, he comes in and he's like, dude, and I'm like, dude, I just gotta. Ernie Ball Endorsement and Ampig. And so we're nerding out, you know? And we exchanged numbers. And I remember um, he was like, you should check out my band, dude. It's kind of crazy we wear these masks and shit. And I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And we ended up becoming friends and they took us out on like their second tour. But this is like early on, you know, but all of us, it, there, there was like a really strong camaraderie at the time, I think, you know, mm. with, we were all so young and everything was so new. And none of us really knew what we were doing. There was not like a real blueprint and new metal was kind of blowing up at the time. I mean, the Deftones and some, some of those bands came before us, but all of us were like babies, you know? Um, so it was like a lot of fun stuff with the Deadlights and Typo and, you know, Slipknot. And dude, I remember we played New York City and we would do a cover of Life of My Own by the Cro-Mags.
0: Oh, know? wow. Yeah, right. And
1: fucking we play we play Life of My Own at the Roxy. It was us, Biohazard and Slipknot, at the Roxy, and um, and we play. And after the show, this guy comes up to me and he's like, "Dude, this is like the that was like one of the best covers I've ever heard of that song." And I'm like, "Dude, thank you so much. What's your name?" He's like, "My name's Paris," and I was like. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's one of those things. Like, some people would freak out about Lady Gaga. I'll fucking, you know, I'm mm, like,
0: yeah.
1: All over Paris to fucking Chromag. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Jesus. But so it was a lot of fun like that with the deadlights. And then it, it, you know, us and Disturbed and, you know, Draymond and I are still like family, like very, very, very dear friends. And, you know, even just meeting them, you know, I'll never, you know. So early on, their first tour was Danzig, you know, <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was a lot of cool shit like that. And then, you know, at a blink of an eye, you know, our record was an utter failure at, in um, 2000, 2000, be- because uh, it only sold like, I think, 195,000 copies. And they were like, 195,000 copies. See you guys later. You're a failure. And I'm like, dude. I always think about that nowadays you know like <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah well i mean how many records i don't even want to say one they they're like oh really but you know this day and age fuck you know it's it's so mind-blowing yeah and and then before i knew it man i was fucking i was out being a rock star and living my dream and doing the oz fest and and next thing you know i was fucking i was going to get a job at the Virgin Megastore, (laughs) you know, like, like, fuck, hey, man, I see see a buddy of mine at the Virgin Megastore, like, are you here for a signing? I'm like, no, I'm (laughs) like, (laughs) oh,
0: man, well, I mean, it seems like things picked up again, though. Uh, yeah. knowing what, you know, was in store. There's uh, so how did the nothing face gig uh, come about then?
1: That's kind of what happened. Well, in 90, in 1992, nothing face came through Sacramento and Tom Maxwell and I met and we just hit it off and we got drunk and I ended up coming to LA with them that night. Like, Oh fuck it. I'll go to LA with you guys with nothing face. It was their very first tour, different singer. And we just became really good friends, and we always stayed in touch. And so then here we are, you know, in 1998, 1999. And I was like, "Holy shit, you guys are doing it too," you know. And he was like, "Dude, you're in the deadlights." And we were always happy for each other. And and so after the deadlights got dropped, and I was working at the fucking Virgin Mega Store downstairs, stealing CDs all day. Um, <laughs> very, very bitter. Um, So, for that, like two weeks, and I I remember um, I was going to Dallas, Texas in a couple of weeks because I, from the Ozfest, I became really close with Dime and Vinny because we were on Electra together, and Electra was always trying to partner us up with Pantera. Right. So, on the Ozfest, Dime and I became like family. So, when we got dropped and Ozfest was over, he was like, hey, man, come, he would call me Deadlight. Deadlight, come to fucking. Come to Dallas and come be in the band, you know. Come play in my side band, Gasoline. And I was like, all right. So I remember it was New Year's Eve, nineteen New Year's Eve, two thousand. So I was flying. To, I was about to fly to Dallas to go spend time with Daryl and play with Diamond, Vinny, and Gasoline on New Year's Eve at the clubhouse and do like three or four shows or something. Mainly covers, but it was fun. Um, and Tom and I was working at the Virgin Megastore, and fucking Tom Maxwell called me. And he was like, hey man. First he called a few times. and I wouldn't take his call because I thought it was maybe some drama. Like, why does this motherfucker call me? <laughs> so finally, I got to the phone. And he's like, he's like, listen, man, Bill quit the band, and we're gonna need a bass player. I'm like, dude, I'm the bass player. It, it was like that, um, like the Chris Farley thing. You know what I mean? Like, can I sleep in your bed? I'm sleeping in your bed. You know, it was like right. I was just like, no, 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 I'm I'm the bass player. Well, you gotta talk to Matt. No, 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 I don't have to talk to Matt. I'm the bass player. Well, you know, I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> In the band, you know. And I remember I hung up the phone. I, I was at work at because I worked at that Virgin Mega store for like two or three weeks. I hung up the phone. I got out, stood up from my little desk area and walked out. And they're like, you go, you, you're going on a break. And I just kept walking, kept walking, kept walking. <laughs> I walked home. And I remember on my walk home, my friend pulled up in her car and she stopped on the side of the road. She's like, hey, do you need a ride? I'm like, you know what? I'm enjoying my walk home. <laughs> and I never got my check. <laughs> I came back. I was just like, yeah, dude, I'm done. And um, and like a week later, I flew to Dallas, put, spent a couple of weeks with Daryl and Vinny, and played at the gasoline gig. And Tom called me, and Dime Gone For was like, listen, you know, if you put the deadline in Nothing Face, because we have the same manager, Pantera will take Nothing Face out on tour. And he was like, well, we're already putting him in the band. He's like, Put him in the bag. <laughs> 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 yeah. But, you know, it was probably like six in the morning and we were fucking shit hammered, fucking whatever. And, uh, and that was it, man. Before I knew it, I was on a fucking, I was back home from Dallas and I was on a plane and learned like 12, 13 nothing face songs in four days. And fucking boom, I was back on the stage at a sold out show at Irving Plaza with nothing face and wow. right out on the fucking tour again, you know. and Wow. You know, and then through Pantera and back and forth and, you know, back through it. And then Bill was coming back to the band and I was like, you know, struggling with a lot of drinking and shit. I was hell we were Hellraisers and and then I Bill came back and I ended up back at home again for like a couple of years and uh and it just kinda you know, it was always up ups and downs, you know. I, I came back and I was like, I'm not gonna play music and then I found some band from Louisiana and next thing you know fucking some it was all you know how it is it's like it'll always call you back
0: mm-hmm.
1: if, if it's if it's meant to be like for whatever reason it always brings me back no matter what you know i i've i've done so many different things tried different things in my life and it always calls me back you know like it's it's just part of it and i came home from nothing face and um um I found this fucking band that I wasn't even looking for. And we had this manager, and we were, you know living the here we are again. I'm living in this house that's like a recording studio. and you know they're like, listen, we got this other band from Florida coming down here we're gonna work with. They're gonna be sharing the house with you. We're like, that's cool. And ended up being um Yellow Cart, They were like, oh young- from Florida. right. And so this before they had gotten signed even, you know. So fucking here we are, you know, it's like us and yellow card and this guy was our manager and, you know, I was like, look, you know, we were about to fire him. And he's like, I'll never forget this. We're driving over Laurel Cannon and his fucking parents Beamer and he pulls over. He's like, listen, this is my Hail Mary. I, you don't fire me and I'm going to make this call. Deal. And I'm still your manager. And I said, sure. Okay, whatever. We're all in the, we're all in the fucking car together with him, right? And um, literally, like, right by, right by the Houdini mansion, he fucking pulls over, and we're like, okay, what's going on? You know, like, well, he gets on the phone in the car. He's like, hey, um, it's, it's Baron. I'm with the guys. Oh, hey, what's going on? No problem. Hold on, let me patch you through. Okay, we're like, what the fuck's going on? Next thing you know, this voice gets on the, the phone and says, hey, guys, it's Fred. We're like, okay, whoever the fuck you are, right? <laughs> He's like, I love your fucking shit. We've been listening to it for like a month. Um, We want you guys to play the Vibe Room tomorrow afternoon for a fucking showcase. And we're like, still like, who the fuck's Fred? You know, like, and then we realize it's Fred Durst. And he had just signed Puddle of Mud. So like Flawless Records was gigantic. You know what I mean? This was like, that's how I know Danny Wimmer that does all the Aftershock. Because Danny had just moved from Florida and Danny was uh, Fred's best friend. Okay. Um, and he was like the A&R guy so we ended up fucking here we are man We're now I try to quit music and now I'm like showcasing for fucking Interscope and Fred Durst who's like the hottest shit on the planet at the time you know I right. mean we would go to a bar and the second I would fuck we would walk into places I swear to god like you would walk through and people would just hand me business cards like I don't care who you are I'm from Warner Chapel Publishing. Call me tomorrow, and I will give you money. That's how it was. No lie. You know, like, if he's working with you, I don't even need to ever hear it. Like, you know, we'll work out a deal tomorrow. doesn't matter. Because whatever, at the time, whatever he touched was, like, gold. Right,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And so we ended up, like, he's like, we play for him, and he's like, congratulations, call your families. You just got signed to Interscope Records, flawless. And we were like, holy shit, what the fuck, right? and three days later 9-11 the entire music business shut down you know and um when when the 9-11 thing happened and then slowly he would have us come and jam with him you know like it started to turn into like a thing where he was having us go jam with him on new Limp biscuit songs we were like this is less about our band and it seems like you're uh trying to like fucking you know uh shark us for your band and shit and so uh, then fucking I ended up going out to the desert and jamming with John Garcia and the John, or John and uh, Unita. And I was doing that. And that was fucking rad because I was a Kais fan. And, you know, I knew Queens guys and shit. And so I was doing that, doing the Stoner Desert Rock thing for a while after that. And then Johnny Kelly, who's like my best friend from Type O, called me and said, Hey, Howie Pyro's quitting fucking uh, Danzig. And Glenn G D asked for your your number and and that was it. I went and had a me, sit down meeting with Glenn at his office, with his at his comic book office at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "I'm like, well, do I need to audition?" He's like, "Nope, you're in the band." And he's like, "You're the first member. You're you're the first guy I've never auditioned. I always wanted you in the band. You're cool. You got the job." Wow. And that was it, man. Fucking, I learned all these songs for nothing. <laughs> I mean, you know, I learned all four notes in various fucking, various, uh, you know, different fucking ways, but yeah. And, um, and then boom, you know, I was back out with Danzig for all those years, making records with them and, and touring the world, you know, and, and then, uh, and then through all that, you know, I, I remember I was with, um, me and John, me and Glenn were going to do, um, full metal Jackie's radio show. Mm-hmm. And, uh. My phone kept ringing, ringing, ringing. It was Johnny, you know, over and over, and and I was like, "What the fuck, Johnny?" You know, like, "Yo, like I'm going to do the radio thing or whatever." He Keeps calling. He's like, "Yo, what the fuck's going on? What the fuck's going on?" I'm like, "I, I, dude, I'm getting. I'm in an elevator. I don't know." He's like, "Listen, there was a shooting, and they're saying that fucking Diamond and Vinny are both dead." And I was like, "What?" And it, right as the elevator doors closed, um, you know, I remember I was just like. Uh, so I, as soon as the elevator doors open, I immediately called Daryl's cell, called Vinny's cell, kept calling, calling, calling. Then I called the house to try to go, of you know, I'm getting voicemails, voicemails, voicemails. And I'm sitting there kind of freaked out and we're hearing the news reports. Like we're sitting there trying to do this fucking radio interview. And I was just like, dude, this is like my, like, these guys are, this dude's like, these guys are like my family friends. You mm-hmm. know, they care of me and I mean, dime, dime tattooed me. You know, we fucking get drunk, tattoo each other, shit, um, and uh, yeah, boom, man! All of a sudden, that happened. Uh, I'll never forget that. You know, it was, I, I, and you know, at the time, I think I was a little, I was a little, I hadn't talked to him in a couple of months because I was a little bitter because I was supposed, to, you know, I I wanted the Damage Plan gig, and we talked about it, and then they ended up, you know, giving it to Bob because he lived there, and and I remember Daryl and Vince, they came to town and they called me. They're like, yo, we're shooting a video. Please just come down and hang out. And I was like, all right. So, you know, luckily I ended me and uh, Dave Draymond we went and we went out to Viper room or something. And, and then later that night, diamond Vince came over cause we'd always hang at at uh, Draymond's house. And, uh, and we were just kind of hanging out, and, and they were like, hey, man, can we go outside and talk to you for a minute? And I'm like, yeah, because I was still kind of like, ah, you know, mm-hmm. that was my gig. Yeah. And, um, and Don was like, you know what, man, I fucking love you so much. I'm sorry if I've made you feel that way. And we just kind of like broke down, hugged each other, and had the best night. And then it was only like maybe a month or two later that he was gone. You know, so I was really, like, lucky and happy that we got that moment. Right, yes. yeah. yeah. But, I mean, we all, we always had a fucking hell of a time, you know. Like, I have countless, I mean, the memories that I have of both of those guys, I mean, and the whole Pantera family was just, you know, I, words can't even really describe, you know, the the amount of craziness that was going on, but also the amount of, like, how loving of human beings these dudes were you know and and a lot you know crazy but fun and everything was always just like everything was always a thing you know i mean but i got to have a lot of really like really genuine great like quiet moments with daryl you know i remember one time we were we were jamming to do the um the the gasoline thing or something and we were at the studio where they made uh, the records and shit in his backyard, Jason Jason, where we made the first Hell Yeah record. <clears throat> and, uh, dude, he was just fucking killing it, shredding, you know, whatever. And everybody went outside on a break or whatever, and it was just him and I sitting there with, the, you know, he had his guitar in his hand or whatever. And I was like, I just got to ask you once. I'm like, dude, like, how do you do it, you know? Like, I don't I – don't, it blows my mind, you know, like how you play. I just – you know, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I don't I would never usually ask that kind of a question, but there was a moment and I asked it and I swear in the most genuine way he looked at me and he was like, You know what, man? He was like, Some people have it the real thing and some people don't but he was like, I believe that he's like sometimes when I close my eyes and I'm playing a solo and I'm recording it, I don't even know what I recorded and I hear it back afterwards and I didn't even know that I'd do it and he said he said, "I don't if people believe in God or not." He was like, "I believe that like I close my eyes and God comes through my body when I play." And I was like, "He was like it's just a thing like Hendrix or something." And I was like, "I believe you. Let's go get drunk." You, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but you know, we, we would have these we, we would have these moments. You know, there was there was just always like, so much fun and you know. Daryl's just a per, you know he was a very very he was a great character he loved little containers loved little containers so you know like little coke cans and the little tiny beer cans he would go buy a whole fucking refrigerator of them because he just got a kick out of a little beer can or a little tiny coke can you know like it was just the small details of just random crazy shit you know or whatever it was you know like hell let's go buy a fucking ten thousand dollars of this for fun <laughs>
0: You know. Well, I, I mean, I've never, I, you know, I've not anywhere near, I've only met them as kind of like a fan, Vinny and, and, and Dimebag. But the times mm-hmm. that I have, they were genuinely very, very easy to approach and easy to talk to, more so than anyone at that caliber of, of success. Um, and yeah, both, I've met Vinny three times and I met Dimebag once. And all all four times, I walked away going, "Wow, they were pretty cool, you know." So that was really nice. Uh, I believe all these stories are, that you're telling me about them. Um, it's great to hear that they were just like, yeah, just really genuine, nice, down to earth people.
1: They were, man. It was. <clears throat> they changed my life. They really did. I mean, throughout my career. Or whatever you would call it. I mean, I would say the the people that that changed it the my life the most would have been Diamond Vinnie and Glenn Danzig. I mean, Diamond Vinnie, you know, it, it, it was special because it came around another time. You know, like right, I right. was a fucking Pantera fan, man. I mean, when I was when Far Beyond Driven came out, I was in a bedroom with a bass learning those songs watching it on mtv you know like so watching those home videos and then being then being on the fucking same record label and then next thing you know being fucking backstage with black sabbath and megadeth and slayer and fucking pantera's dressing room getting drunk with them and you know i was just like wow man these you're a real person you know and and they were just Good people. I mean, you know, we, we would have so, you know, with the Deadlights when we toured with Pantera, I only lived on Pantera's bus. So I lived above Dime, like, or below him. So Dime's bunk was above me, and I just slept on the, on the bottom bunk, and I never even went on my own bus. I never even lived with my own
0: band. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, like crazy crazy shit like that you know wake up in the morning and look over on the floor and he'd roll out on the floor of fucking you know like he would always put his food under his pillow so nobody else would eat it and you have like fucking chili beans mashed in his hair and his hair up in a bun and his kiss slippers on fucking pouring shots and i would be like dude no no (laughs) and it'd be like 9 a.m. checking into a hotel, and he'd be like, "Let's go, let's do this shit," and I'd be like, "Dude, seriously, stop. I'm gonna die," you know. <laughs> but um, it was always it was always a good time, but you know, and then that all that happened, and you know, next thing you know, fucking, you know, um, I was on a plane to Dallas for a different reason, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and all of us were, and it was like. A, a nightmare, you know, like to be for everybody involved, you know, just to be there and for the um, finality of something and and how real it was, you know. I mean, I mean, I was I was there, dude. Fucking Eddie Van Halen brought that fucking guitar in there and put it in his casket, and it is with him in the ground, you know, to this day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but no guitar. No, nothing there's nothing in the world that like that uh, whatever put any kind of light onto that situation you know I mean it was very a very dark time because Dallas was always filled with so much fun and excitement and joy and it really felt after he passed away that like the whole city, like it dimmed the city every person that lived there had a story about him and like Pantera was like you know like a th- it was such a thing there it was like a it was like texas pride you know and right. when that and it was like so dark and that and then around that time you know maybe about a year afterwards that's that's when i started calling vince saying hey man listen you know me tom and chad we want to make our own band and uh we would love for you to be the drummer you know and, he was just kind of like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, he, 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 was, he was very adamant. Like, listen, you know, I, I love you. And I'm like, listen, I got a singer who's got a fucking Grammy nomination and gold records. And this could be a huge thing. And he was just like, I love you. Thank you. But I'll, I'll never play music without my brother, you know. Right. And I, and I would just be like, I fucking, I, I, I have no rebuttal to that.
0: You know what I mean? What score. what turned him? What what convinced him to do it?
1: Well, I had I had hit him up, and and he said, you know, he politely was like, no, you know. And then maybe a few months later, I hit him up again because originally I think Chad was uh, on tour. Okay, so the original Hell Yeah band it was basically Nothing faced with Chad singing. We we were in we were in New Orleans, and Chad didn't like his band. And he got drunk, and we, were, we didn't get along with our singer, Matt, as he did a lot of drugs and we drank. So the, it was like me, Ch- Chad, and Tom were like best fucking friends, still are. And, um, and I remember we were, we were sitting on Bourbon Street, and I looked at him and I'm like, why don't we just start our own fucking band? You know, like drunk, like fuck our bands, you know? And when we, were, we were on tour with Disturbed. Disturbed, nothing face, mud vein, and spine shape. And, um, and it was like, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm like, yeah, we'll call it fucking multiple stab wounds. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the heaviest shit in the world. And we were like, yeah, multiple stab wounds. So whenever we get drunk, it was always a joke. We're going to start this fucking thing or whatever. And then, you know, maybe a a year or two of me calling everybody going, we should really do this, we should do this, we should do this, and Chad being like, well, i got to make another Main record. And I'm like, fuck a Main record, let's do this, you know? And um, so we finally got together, recorded a song called Waging War, which is on the first Hell Yeah record. It was the first song we ever recorded, and it was our drummer, Tommy Sickles, from Nothing Face. So Basically, it was Nothing Face with Chad, and uh, it was fucking bad as fuck. And I'll never forget, there's a line in the song that says... Um, like And, of course, he's like, headless, handless, motherfucker, cold, white, and breathless. And Chad and I were getting on an airplane to fly to Baltimore to go record that song. And there was a newscaster on the on CNN or whatever, and they were like, the lifeless body of this woman was found headless, handless, and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's it, dude, like, headless, handless. And he was like, oh, I love that. So it ended up being in the song. We went there, did it. Chad went back out on tour and he was like, listen, we're torn with Seven Dust and Morgan Rose would love to be the drummer and I love Morgan. I'm like, yo, dude, I love Morgan. You know, his 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 fucking uh daughter is like my fucking you know, I'm practically like a godfather because his Raina from Cold Chamber who I used to live with in the old days, when they first got together, we're we're all we were already connected, you know. And it didn't end up working out, and then the band kind of fizzled out again. And I was like, Chad's like, well, we don't got a drummer, da-da-da. And I'm like, fuck that. So I called up Vinny the first time. He said no, I called him up again. And he was like, he's like, Montano." I'm like, dude, listen, you should really consider this. And he was like, you know, I I really would love to know. And then, dude, at like 4 o'clock in the morning, Maybe like a few months later, I get a drunken, fucking hammered-ass phone call from Vinnie Paul in the middle of the night, 4 a.m., you know, Deadlight, what's up? So I've been thinking, fuck it, let's do this fucking band, tell those motherfuckers fly out to Texas, let's do it. And I was like, what? Yes! And uh, I never even told Chad and Tom that I had talked to Vinnie Paul or even asked him. And so I called them the next day, I'm like, yo, I got us a drummer, they're like, who? I'm like... Uh, Vinnie Paul. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. I'm like, he's like, shut up. I'm like, no, no, Vinny Paul. He's our fucking drummer. And they're like, what? Chad was like blown away. You know, he, for a couple of weeks, Chad was like nervous to call Vinnie. And I would be like, yo, Vince keeps calling me saying, why is Chad not calling me? And Chad would be like, I don't know what to say. He's fucking Vinny Paul. And I'd be like, he thinks you're snubbing him. You know, I mean, he thinks you're, he thinks that you're not calling him because you're like, you know, you're being a dick. He's like, no, dude, it's Vinnie Paul, and I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so we fucking flew out there, dude. Oh, right. The, so the night before we were gonna go fly out to do that, he told me like many a few months later, he told me, he said, you know what, man, the night before you guys got out here, I was gonna call the whole fucking thing off because um. We recorded in that studio, but the night that Daryl died and they came home, they rolled all that gear in that room and locked that door, and no one had opened that door, yeah. I don't think, since since that, since they came home from that incident. Yeah. And um, Vinny, had, they, Vinny and Brydog, I guess, had to go through the studio to get it cleaned up and ready for us, and he said it was just too much. He couldn't be in there seeing his stuff. And he was going to call it off, but luckily he didn't. And the rest was history, man. We went in there and we wrote a song every day. We'd write a song. We'd be like, all right, let's fucking write a song. Get fucking. Chad had like, a buddy at Coors Light. They sent us like an actual pallet of fucking Coors Light, like a, six, like a five-foot fucking pallet of booze. <laughs> <laughs> no lie. And we'd fucking sit out there, drink all day, play, write a song, record it, and then about 4.30 in the morning, when we had it good and down, we would burn it onto a CD, drive down to the strip club, Vinnie's strip club, put it on, have the DJ play it, have the girls dance to it. And then we'd be like, if the girls can dance to it and they like it, then it's a hit. And that would be it. That would be the test every single night. You know, we'd write a song, get hammered, go to the titty bar, play for the girls, go back, party till morning, wake up, write. And we just we would just on repeat, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, it was, it was all like, it just happened. There was no extra songs. We just, every song we wrote that day was the song for the record. And we just had, like, this fucking time of our lives and, you know, so on and so on. It's just, you know, a lot of, like, life, you know? I mean, like, I'm so grateful for all these things that happened. I mean, I ended up, you know out of the band, my fucking alcoholism was spiraling out of control and I end up getting sober and getting my shit together. But we all stayed family and we're still family to this day. I mean, I go to their shows and you know, Tom and I write music and send stuff back and forth to each other and you know, I'm I'm like very grateful for the friendships and the relationships with all these guys. I mean Shavo from System, he's like one of my family family friends, you know, our our we have kids the same age. We live We're neighbors, practically, and, you know, all of us, you know, we're still, everybody's still, you know, after all the crazy shit, we're just still us. It's kind of like we're still in the front yard at the keg party, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, Except for we're like, man, can you believe we're like 40-something and all that shit really happened? Is this weird? And I'm like, you live in a fucking castle. (laughs) (laughs) Weird. That's weird. Yes. (laughs) Yes, Dave Draven. You had a castle. That's pretty weird. And Gary Newman fucking bought it. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to ask you about your time in Danzig. So you told me about how you got the gig. Um, but how was it being in Danzig? Well, being in Danzig
1: was... I You know, it was a dream come true for me. But I think at the time, because I was, you know... You, you go through life, you know I'm, you I'm sure you can relate, like some things are happening so fast that you don't really uh absorb the magnitude of it until years later. you know what I mean, I'm sure you can relate, dude, I mean, you're fucking touring with guns and roses, you know, like right, right. you know, and when it happens, you're like, "Fuck yeah, let's do this shit." and then you look back at it a few years later, and you're like, "Man, that's fucking friends of Axl Rose, you right. know like. That's heavy.
0: You
1: know? Right, yeah, yeah. You know? And it was it was like that, man. I mean, because I saw Danzig with Ra- with White Zombie. I saw Danzig on Lucifuge. And right. I sat out and waited in front of the tour bus like the people that would wait for me. And I sat out and got Glenn Danzig's fucking autograph.
0: yeah that was me too, yeah, yeah
1: you know, and I, I would sit out in the cold and fucking wait for him. And fucking, yeah. I, I remember first time I ever met him, he came outside of the bus and I I was like, I got to ask him something that's cool. You know, like, you know, I don't want to like be a dick. This is Glenn Danzig. And I remember he came out and he was like, you know, hey, what's up? And I was like, uh, uh can I get this autograph? And he autographs it for me. He's like, yeah, there you go. And I was like, so, hey, man, whatever happened to King Horse? And he was like, I don't know. What happened to him? And he walked away because he, like, produced this band called King Horse. Oh, okay. And on Deaf American. And it was actually a pretty decent record. Um, and, uh, and he was just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Fuck you. And I was like, oh, you're Glenn dancing. And I got <laughs> your autograph. And it's going on my wall, you know. <laughs> but, um, so it, it was, it was surreal, um, it was to play the songs that I loved so much. You know what I mean? Like, dude, I mean, to be able to play Long Way Back from Hell,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like, to me was just like, I mean, Twist of Cain, all those songs. I loved all those songs. I mean, to play those songs was, was really cool, too. But Lucifuge had, like, a very special place in my heart. Like, I loved the second record mm-hmm. so
0: much. Same with me. Same thing.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just that record. There's some there's a magic about that. Yeah.
0: Record. I agree.
1: And I love everything about it. But Long Way Back from Hell, every single time we could play that song, I would just be so pumped up. It's just, just it's, I love it. And going down to die. Like that song live is so fucking heavy. I mean, I love playing all of them, but to be able to be on stage and look over and be like, dude, I'm in fucking Danzig.
0: <laughs> it's that's insane it's amazing
1: you know and uh and him and i we became really good friends man to where you know it's like to have that kind of a bond with gd you know where you know when we're not on tour he comes and picks me up in my house and we go you know at the time we always go dvd shopping go have lunch and Mm -hmm. uh go to amoeba and shit you know like we weren't just like work partners. We were buddies, you know, I helped him move right. out of the house and and to be somebody that he trusted and and for us to be friends like that was was cool. You know, and, and all the craziness that comes up comes around it, of course, you know, I mean there was like it was, you know, again, it's off the fucking charts, off the rails. But there was also a lot of like, you know, genuine um family vibe and especially with Johnny Kelly and right, with Tommy right. And, I, you know, with Todd Youth for a little bit, Todd did some stuff with us. Right. Um, but the, all the whole... See, the thing about Danzig was is that everybody that's ever been in Danzig, I've, like, grown up with and known. You know, like, when I was younger, you know, I knew Joey C. You know, it was like, holy shit, Joey. And then Rob Nicholson, Blasco. And Tommy and fucking um, Johnny. And just you know pretty much everybody that came through the band lazy all all, all the members i always knew them all so it's it's kind of cool to be a part of the legacy of it you know of something that that's never going to go away you know and and th- and then to also be you know to be on a few be on a few records was is like something that you know that that's something i give my kid you know like mm-hmm. my dad's on fucking few Danzig records Danzig will always be around you know Jerry might not be but Danzig will you know the the musical there. um so yeah a lot of cool shit like that a lot of crazy shit and getting to the fun stuff you know I mean I'll never forget I was at my house and Glenn called me and said uh he was like hey so uh you know what do you think about bringing Doyle out and doing some fucking you know doing a misfit set and I was like I remember I I want to jump out of my fucking skin dude you know like I wanted to fucking scream at the top of my lungs but you can't do that (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean like there's got to be a little bit of reverse psychology in there because if you're too excited he'll say no if I'm like yes, let's do it. He'll be like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't seem like that good of an idea. You know? So I, I know from all the years of working with him, I was like, I remember I was like, okay, I'm at the crossroads. Not that my decision would make a, make that much of a, you know, thing one way or another, but I'll never forget it. Cause Pepper Keenan was, I think Pepper was staying at my house at the time, um, hurricane Katrina or something had happened. right? right. <laughs> but Pep, I think Pepper was living with, with us. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, Pepper, Pepper was living at the house, which is another funny story. <clears throat> I'm, like, sitting up. Pep's, like, you know, sitting at the kitchen table with his big fucking knife. You know, everybody's doing drugs and partying so the next day. And he's like, hey, man, uh, <clears throat> one of my buddies is stopping by to, to like, uh, to pick me up, you know. So if somebody knocks at the door, you know, answer the door, just let them know or whatever. Fucking James Hetfield. Comes to a fucking house to pick up Pepper. Ah, <laughs> uh, he don't. He wouldn't tell me who. But you're like, what the fuck, you know? And I'm sitting there looking at like, like what? <laughs> James Hetfield, you know, like uh, he's over there. <laughs> <laughs> How's that ride the lightning, wreck- wreck- wreck? <laughs> You know, they don't know what the fuck. It- what do you say, James Hetfield? You know, right. like yeah. Wow. god fucking rhythm fucking guitar hand of all fucking time you know um but anyway going back so yeah man he he was like you know what do you think and i was like holy shit doyle and i remember my answer was yeah but everybody will be there to see danzig anyway right and you know (laughs) like yep You're right. And I was like, yes. And he was like, Yeah, I think we'll do it. And I was like, Oh my god, yes. I hung up the phone and I was I had goosebumps over my whole fucking body. I'm like, I get to play fucking misfit songs with Doyle and Glenn. Like
0: That's dude, pretty cool. Yeah.
1: That's like, for me, that's like being able to play with fucking Dee and Joey Ramone yeah. or fucking yeah. Jimmy yeah. And fucking Robert Plant. Yeah. Like, like that that's on a fucking level yeah. that at the time that my mind couldn't even comprehend because, you know, you gotta remember also, as you know, he wouldn't even fucking do a Misfit song. And this is like the thing that everybody's always wanted for all time. You yeah. know, and, and it's the one thing I always wanted for all time. And I just hope that if it ever happened, he would still hate Jerry only enough that maybe I would be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jared. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. And, uh, and, it, and it just worked out, man. And uh, I'll never forget, dude. We fucking, <clears throat> first day of rehearsals, we go in the fucking, you know, in the rehearsal room, and, uh, you know, I'm nervous. I've never met Doyle. I just, we had mutual friends, and everybody always spoke so highly of Doyle. You know, he's the greatest guy, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, right. well, you know, It's first day at school again. Here we go, right? I fucking walk in. There's Doyle happy as nice as, sweet, as human being that he is and uh and then it was like fuck here we go and gd walked in he's like all right let's do it and fucking i want to say that one of the first songs that we did was earth ad or fucking uh i think it was earth ad or death comes ripping and uh <clears throat> dude i will ne it's it's burned into my brain because The second that we played the song, he had the microphone and he got down into that stance that's like on the t-shirt. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Yeah. You know, where he's like kind of crouched down like the fucking 25-year-old Glenn Danzig from the fucking Misfits. And dude, he got in that stance and I looked over and it just came out of him like instinctually, you know? Wow. And it, it was like, it wasn't like a moment that he like thought about, it just happened. And I was like, whoa, we're really fucking doing this shit. And we fucking burned through all the songs, you know, like 15 songs in fucking 20 minutes or something, you know? And um, it was just, and even Doyle at the time, he was just like, wow, I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe we're fucking doing this.
0: And I'm like, you're fucking telling me, Jesus, man. <laughs> what, was, it, was it Johnny on drums?
1: Yeah, it was me, Johnny Kelly.
0: And Tommy?
1: Uh, Tommy and um and Doyle, yeah. Right. And we went out and did that for a long time. And um you know so much crazy shit. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there there's there's the there's the fun, you know, beauty of like being a part of something like that and you know, artistically but there's also like, you know, we were fucking We were crazy, too. And like I told you when we first, you know, when we first started talking, dude, I had my little Bose fucking speaker thing and me and Johnny everywhere we'd fucking go. Dude, probably in, um, I don't know, I want to say in 2003, 2002, 2003, I fucking heard of this fucking Danko Jones shit, dude. And it was like, You know, I always like kind of like Nashville Pussy, some of that stuff. But it wasn't like it didn't have that. All those things were missing just kind of like that fucking rock and roll thing. And the second that I found your shit, I swear on my soul, dude, it was a never ending playlist ever, never, ever, ever, ever. You know, I mean, I never fucking stopped listening to that record.
0: Wow. Thanks, man.
1: (laughs) Every fucking show. It would be like, Denko. yep, put on the Denko. We're playing in 15 minutes, and we'd fucking, you know, I'd throw on your fucking record, and we'd fucking get warmed up, start doing shots, have drinks, and fucking that was, that was usually how the night started with the Doyle thing and with the with a lot of Danzig shows was with this fucking – I didn't even know Denko Jones was a person. I thought Dinko Jones was a fan. I didn't care what Denko Jones was. <laughs> I was like, dude, this shit – you gotta fucking hear this. This is this is it. This is it.
0: Damn. Wow. I man, I had no idea. And it's interesting, because you were on Circle of Snakes, right? Right. And I remember there's when Circle of Snakes came out, uh, we played this festival and uh in Switzerland and, and um I don't know, there wasn't I think there's some sort of weird it wasn't a competition, but every night of this festival the 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 people would give a watch to the band that they thought earned it, like one watch. Yeah. So our band got the watch that night, and um, the we had gotten <clears throat> these free CDs as well, like like a ton from our um, from one of our labels, and they handled uh, circle, okay. of, circle of snakes. Yep.
1: Yeah, because uh, Pierre from was from uh, Malmo or whatever, right? He had that Regain Records. He had like a record store or something. Oh
0: yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where we where we got the Circle of Snakes from, but it was in our in on our bus, and uh, you know we always like divvy up whatever. You know we, we we always share whatever CDs we had at the time. So at the time we got this watch. So there's only one watch. There's three of us, and the other two guys that the, they were just arguing over which one of the two are gonna have it i was out i was like i don't need a fucking watch right. and, <laughs> yeah. and so to just ease all the tension between uh, uh, they just said okay let's just give it to me so i got the watch and so i go oh wow i got this watch but i still get circle of snakes right <laughs> i remember that <laughs> Circles of Snakes was more important to me than this Swiss watch that uh, they were fighting over. So that I always, I always got a kick out of that. That the Danzig album was mm. were more valuable to me than and than the the watch. Because um, they were like, okay, we're, we're you know they're getting mad at each other, and so they were just like, just give it to him, and now everyone's even because he doesn't even want it. <laughs> <laughs> And I got the watch, but I was like, "Okay, I'll take the watch, but I still get the Danzig album, <laughs> so that I always remember that with Circle of snakes, yeah, so rec-
1: you know when we made that record, we didn't even know we were making that record, you know it was kind of like, really, yeah, it was like that was just how it happened, you know that it was how he worked, and you know we would go into we would go rehearse before tours, and he'd be like, "Jam this riff, or like, what riff?" he'd be like the one that's like." Ah, ah. <laughs> right, right. At each other like, Tommy. I, mean, I guess you better make up a riff fast. It sounds like that. <laughs> you know, he's like, all right. And we would jam it, and it'd be like, yeah, that's cool. You know, we'd be like, all right. And then, you know, whatever we'd do the set and go on tour and come back, and you know, it would be like, all right, let's uh, jam that idea, and we'd be like, what idea? He's like that song that we wrote. Fucking, you know, the one. Or like. Okay, <laughs> you know, wow, and that's how you know we went in the studio and and uh and uh made that record, and it was kind of like it just happened, you know, literally just happened. It was like written on very much on the fly, but he, he does a lot of his work in post production, but it was my first time working with him, <clears throat> and it was interesting just to watch him he is very creative, you know, I mean, he plays guitar a little bit. He played, he could play, he played drums on some of those misfits albums. Wow. Um, but he hums everything into like a recorder and he remembers what it is. And that's how he does everything. And I would, I would be there when he would do vocals, dude. And that was like, that was a big deal to me <clears throat> to yeah. be able to like the fly on the wall when <sighs> fucking, when he does his, uh, he does his thing, you know? That reminds me. I was going to tell you the story, I think I had told you. <clears throat> we were doing, and this is going back to Blackie Lol's. <laughs> Um We were doing, we were coming back from like, you know, we were in South America, fucking, you know, drinking snake blood from fucking live snakes and shit, and fucking, you know, crazy, fucking, crazy shit out of the movie whatever kicked out the hotel rooms fights fucking whatever and we finally before that tour i told you i bought a lot of because i knew my buddies were in wasp and from being the fucking fifth grade year old me right you know the blackie lawless fan i had to go fucking i bought a fucking lot of wasp records brought them in my fucking luggage six and a half weeks across Europe so I could take him to the very last show in fucking uh, Mexico, right? Right, right. Monterey, right. Mexico. Us and Motorhead co-headlining. And, uh, you know, we got fucked in customs and ended up going home. They're like, well, I guess you guys got to go home. And I'm like, motherfucker, I do not want to go home for three hours. You know what I mean? Because it was like, we flew back from south or uh, from from uh we had flown back from um england and then got stuck in customs from on our way back from new york and ended up going home and i was like "Fuck!" so i still had the records in my bag flew to south or flew into mexico it was a fun flight and we were excited because it, it was us motorhead and wasp all on the same fucking plane so this is fucking crazy this is like almost famous moment shit you know and and we're on this fucking plane and we're getting close to Mexico dude and I fucking swear on my soul this fucking plane started fucking shaking I mean we, you get bad turbulence whatever yeah I but this fucking plane man it got it bad 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 to where we dropped in elevation. Thousand, you know, like hundreds, like enough to where everybody that was in the plane hit the ceiling and stepped to the ceiling and came crashing down. The drink carts I saw go to the ceiling of the fucking plane and stay there and come crashing down, right? And I remember, I remember I was sitting in my chair and I looked down the aisle and fucking i see tommy ahead of me like six rows ahead of me i see him go and i'm looking down at him because the plane's like at a downward thing and i remember i was grabbing the fucking things and i was like jesus holy fuck like my my true instinctual feeling was it's finally happening all these years of flying on planes you know what i mean it's like you know like here it comes, you know, like like we're really we're really fucking dying. This is real. Like, holy shit. And I remember thinking like, I'm gonna die with these motherfuckers. <laughs> like, I'm gonna these motherfuckers. Fuck this, you know? Like, like, fuck this. I'm gonna have to die with these motherfuckers now. Fuck this. Like, holy shit, I'm dying. What the fuck? fucking flight attendants are fucking screaming and crying drinks are everywhere fucking babies are screaming fucking passengers are crying the fucking you know like it's fucking pandemonium you can hear the metal creaking on the fucking plane the engines like we're like oh my god it's it's over we're dead you know and it kind of like calms down for a minute and it's just boom 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 side to side and the fucking the the pilot comes on. He's, like, breathing heavy. You know, he's, like, can't... He barely can speak English. Fuck. You know, he's, like, we believe... Please be, remain calm. We believe the plane is still 100% functional. And I'm thinking, like, motherfucker, you believe the plane is still functional? The fucking flight attendants are screaming. They're praying, dude. You know, like... And I'm, like, yeah, this is not normal, you know?
0: Right.
1: <laughs> so... It finally calms down, and i am just—we're all sweating to death. We get off the plane, and I'm thinking, like, "Dear God, you know, like, like, if I'm gonna die on a plane, I'm definitely gonna die on a plane with Glenn Danzig and Lemmy. You know what I mean? Like, right, yeah. if two people are gonna die on a plane that are famous, they're famous. It'll be like two fucking, you know, Glenn Danzig, Lemmy, and a bunch of other people died on the plane." <laughs> <laughs> what I mean like <laughs> you know, it's like what the fuck and I remember we got off the plane it's, it's, it's me, Lem GD and somebody else we're walking off the plane together and I was like dude and I was like we were going to die he was like yeah, we were going to die and I was like and, <laughs> and Lemmy I know and Lemmy's like Lemmy says out of my entire career of flying ever in my life that's the worst that's the closest I've ever come to dying in my entire career. And I was like, motherfucker, you're old as fuck, and you've been doing this forever. If you said that we were going to die on that plane, trust me, we, I believe you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not I will swim home from Mexico, fuck that plane, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and GD's like, yep. And I was like, we're going to die, hon. Huh? He, like, he was like, yep, but we weren't going to die. And I was like, why? He was like, because I called it a favor. <laughs> and I was like, come on. I like, yep. And he's like, he was like, I knew we were going to And I was like, all right, man. But I, I, I remember, dude, I was fucking terrified. And that was Mexico. I fucking drug my fucking records down to that fucking show. <laughs> <laughs> right? Here we go. Fuck it. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we play the fucking show, Wasp plays Dude is my fucking good friend And Mike Dupke, he played on my fellow records And shit, he was a drummer And, and all of us, we're, we're buddies and shit And and me and Black and Lala Aren't, apparently <laughs> But um, Yeah man, and I fucking brought the records down And the fucking manager's like, you know I'm like, I, I told you, I was in the dressing room And they're like, hey man, whatever's left in there you can have So I grabbed the fucking booze we're getting shit hammered And, and uh and then afterwards, I'm like, all right, cool. I go down to the lobby and we're all hanging out, Lemmy and fucking all of us or whatever. And I, you know, got a little buzz on, go up to my room, grab my WASP record. It's like, fuck yeah. Come down, stand in there for a minute, you know, and fucking Blacky Laws won't even look at me. I <laughs> like, looks over to Dude. where's that bottle of vodka? He's like, Hey, Jerry, you still have that bottle of vodka? I'm like, yeah, man, the one you gave me. It's right here. He's like, oh, yeah, let me see it. He takes it, blackly dumps the whole thing in his cup and hands me the empty bottle. And I'm standing there like, come on, motherfucker, fuck you. (laughs) You know? They're like, like, Wasp is one thing. Six, like, I love those records. But now you just took my vodka, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, um. And, and I was like, hey, man, I have these records. And dude's like, yo, yo, yeah, yo, yeah, can't be standing next to Blackie Lawless like that. You know? And I, I remember I was just like, fuck you. So
0: long story. That's crazy. St- you're, with, he, you're with Danzig and Lemmy and Blackie yeah. acting like that? <laughs> yeah. Insane. Well, he, he didn't say anything,
1: really. He just, he, you know, I mean, I'm invisible, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, so I got the record signed. And, uh,
0: yeah, sure.
1: You know, yeah. it, it, it's funny. You know, it's it's kind of similar to, now I'm friends with Ace Fraley, but the first time I ever met Ace Fraley, similar story, like, all my friends had met Ace, and I'm I'm like, you know, it's, you know, I'm like, fucking holy fuck, you know? <laughs> and and then we're, we're in the bar at the Key Club, and, and Ace is there at the bar, and I'm just like, oh my god, here's my moment, and he knows all my friends, so he's gonna be cool, he's my friend, he's Ace Fraley! <laughs> <laughs> I like tap him on the shoulder, and I'm like Ace, and he looks at me. He goes, "Don't even fucking talk to me. I have jet lag." And he turns his back, and everybody around me was like, "Oh, brutal!" And I was like, oh, oh. "Broke my little Ace Frehley heart, you know?" Yeah. And uh, and so I remember I like I just fucking I put my finger and I touched his back, and I mouthed every. I'm like, "I touched Ace freely and everybody yelled like, "Yeah!" And he like looks back like, "What the fuck, you know?" And I was like, oh, Ace. And then I, I met Gene too, and, he, and I'll never forget, you know, here's my moment with Gene Simmons, my big fucking moment. And I'm like, oh, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> and he, like, he's walking towards me, he nudges me out of the way. I put my hand to go shake his hand, and he has like this fucking dirty napkin. Now, who knows? We've been watching fucking snotting. Or what?
0: Yeah. And I put my hand
1: out to Sheikah's hand, he puts the napkin in my hand and nudges me out of the way. <laughs> and I was like, Oh man. Well, you're Gene Simmons, I guess you can get away with it. But yeah. later on I ended up being friends up later on being friends with Ace, but right. and he's fucking he's great, dude. Like such such a such a great person, but you know, you know how it is a fucking kiss, man. It's like Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> peter chris the fucking chris man i told i i have a i have some chris guitar picks i think i sent you pictures of him once right but with uh his guitar player angel they played like a show for like 20 people in sacramento dude and whoa and it was the chris band with this guitar player guy i'll never forget his name's angel i have the guitar pick and after the show dude it was weird i tripped out because when he's playing drums he would like blink his eyes and like act all weird, and I'm like, "This motherfucker had a stroke, or he's fucking <laughs> there flashbacks. Like he's still in Kiss, because at this time he had not been in Kiss. This is before the reunion. You know what I mean? Like, right?
0: Yeah. Right. Right.
1: It's like what blue? What was the song? Blue something? Blue moon or blue something? He oh, wrote about yeah. it for on that record.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, with right. The, with the uh, like, he's got half the makeup on. Is that the one?
1: Right. Yeah, that's the album. Yeah, and he played he played this little club, man. You know, in fucking Sacramento. And after afterwards, I went around the back of the club and I I waited for him. And I actually I got to talk to him for like two hours, man. And he was super cool. And he would te- he was telling me stories. Like he was like, dude, you know, when we when we were kissing the <clears throat> in the seventies, he was like, dude, we were fucking like hostages, bro. Like we when we once once we went into a hotel, we, we didn't have friends. We didn't hang out with people. Once we were in our makeup, we we couldn't go anywhere or do anything. And he said that him and Ace were like best friends and that they would always get their rooms connecting. I'll never forget this. And he said that when their rooms weren't connecting a few times, they would send out for power tools and they would cut holes through the walls to make their rooms connect. (laughs) And he said they would fucking, um, they would go, they would order extension cords and plug them all in. And then throw the TV out the window and make bets on if it would like hit the ground plugged in still and shit like that. And I was just like, tell me more. <laughs> Please, Peter Chris, tell me more. You know what I mean? And yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. But that was where my uh, Peter fuck my Peter Chris most. But hey, I mean, coming from the beginning of this conversation when I was five years old, I never thought I'd be friends with Ace Frehley or have time with Peter Chris or be able to watch paul stanley dance around you and look it up I almost question his sexuality <laughs> 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 but uh one hell of a singer i love i love paul stanley i love kiss dude i have fucking rock and roll over tattooed on my leg you know what i mean so yeah sometimes as i trip you know i don't really unless i really talk about it which i don't talk about it much but you know i'll like you know you have those moments sometimes where i'll be doing something or i'm just driving my car and i'll think like i'll think about daryl or something or mm. you know or some of the shit that's happened or whatever and i mean it's cool man you know i mean and again it's it's strange how it just it know yeah. always call me back you know like this edema thing you know like right they're like hey we need you blah 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 and i'm like hey you guys have been my friends forever sold millions of records you're kind of putting it back together i mean I'm just at home fucking doing my thing and you know something something seems to brew you know or it's there's something about what we do you know i i believe that I believe that um that people are made for this and I believe that there's like a fate and a destiny that's made for us us artists that bring us here in this i'm not <clears throat> I'm not saying I'm like a big god person or something i'm a I'm a believer in like something bigger than us but i i believe i'm sure even as you do because you know that call of that thing it's in you it's instinctual you know and it it, it's it's something that you can't always put a finger on it's something that you're not you know that you really can't fight but it's it's something that like daryl said man it's it's something that's that's bigger than us you know what i mean that 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 we were We were meant to do the things that we do on whatever scale that it is. And it touches people's lives. Your music touched my life. I mean, it's always, I listen to, I swear, dude, I listen to your music more than I listen to anybody. Still, tomorrow, yesterday, when I'm driving my car every day, I'm listening to your fucking records all the time.
0: Wow. I'm, I'm, wow, man. Thank you.
1: It's, it's like I listen to Danko. I, I got to be worth at least fucking two or three thousand of those plays. <laughs> <At least laughs> like, I listen to that shit like I swear it's always the number one thing on my Spotify. It's what I listen to. It's my because it, it's what dude it's what if I'm in it. If, if I'm not having the best day, if I put on your music, I feel fucking happy as fuck. Wow. I, I, no matter what, it, it brings me in a good mood no matter what. When I'm like – when I got to do errands and I'm feeling good, you know how it is, and you're driving with the windows down, it's Danko Jones. If I'm in a bad mood, I put it on. If I'm feeling good, if I'm getting ready to go out, me and Ace are going hiking, we're doing whatever, I, it's it's a go-to for me. So, you know, it's like what we do touches people's lives. You know, what you do touch my life, and I got to be your friend, and it's cool. But, you know, there's, there's, there is something – there's something bigger about what we do that calls us back that, that makes us what we are. You know, I, I believe that on all, in us people that are artists or like I kind of believe it. I kind of call it sounds weird but I've always kind of called it like I'm a creator in a way. Not really so much like creating music, but I can manifest I you did it too. We manifested our fucking real life dream. You know, and create something from absolute zero, from thin air in a bedroom with nothing in it. You created something that touches fucking hundreds of thousands of lives everywhere at any given time across the world. You know, we you created that. That's pretty intense, and it's cool. You know what I mean? So, thanks for what you do too, man.